Thanks for being here, everybody. This, is, this session is called The Freedom of Empowerment. And uh, <clears throat> I'm convinced that God wants us to live empowered lives. And I'm not talking about self-improvement. I'm not talking about positive thinking. I'm talking about living by the power of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the finished work of Christ. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about the freedom of empowerment. And the tragedy is that many of us, many Christians uh, in the church, live lives of defeat. They're Christians, there's no question about it, and they will acknowledge all the truths that make a Christian a Christian, but they're living defeated lives. And it's obvious to me from reading the scripture, based on how God sees us, that he wants us to live the lives of overcomers. When he sees us, he sees us as conquerors. He refers to us to that in scripture. Thank you, Greg. And he, in fact, <clears throat> if you read the, the letter to the seven churches in Revelation, every single one of them ends with, yes, he who overcomes. And then he explains what the rewards will be. And so it's obvious that God wants us to live in that identity. He wants to live in the power of being an overcomer. And so that is basically the theme of today's uh, breakout session, the freedom of empowerment. And I think the best thing we can do as leaders is to live that life, live that life ourselves, right? Because we can't teach or bring others into what we're, we don't experience or know ourselves. So the best thing we can do as leaders is to live that out ourselves and then help others to live it out as well. Now, to help us get there, <clears throat> I'm going to explore three areas today. I'm going to look at boundaries, we're going to look at identity, and we're going to look at motivations. Those three areas. We need to have biblical boundaries, we need to have Christ-centered identity, and we need to have God-inspired motivations. So that's the three areas that we're going to address this morning. <clears throat> and um, I want to share with you that... Um, a lot of what I talk about this morning is going to be principle and theory. We're not going to give a lot of practical illustrations. Uh, what I'm trying to give you is the tools that you'll be able to flesh this out yourself and walk it out yourself. So what I'm basically doing is I'm framing it up, but you're going to have to fill in that frame with a lot more detail. It, this talk would take three hours if I, if I illustrated everything and gave you examples. It might be a little bit more entertaining and interesting, but I'm going to try to give you some tools today that you can actually meditate on and take with you and fill in, fill in the detail. <clears throat> so the first thing that we want to do is talk about boundaries. Boundaries to protect the authentic person that God created you to be. You know how Tom always says in his Sunday morning message, there's, there's the best version of yourself, be the best version of yourself. That version of yourself is the person that God created you to be. And... <clears throat> And so what boundaries will help you to do is to help you to be that person. So we've got two paragraphs here to set this up. Who would be willing to read that first paragraph, which, which is called the purpose of boundaries? Somebody? Okay. Jen? The purpose of boundaries. In this fallen world, there are many hidden forces in operation, such as shame, guilt, fear, and insecurity, that try to steal, diminish, or distort the real person that God created you to be. As a result, we live out many false identities that are an aberration of God's original design. Boundaries are a part of God's redemptive plan to restore what has been taken away. Boundaries are deeply biblical and absolutely essential to protect and help us operate out of a true sense of who we are, our authentic selves. Without healthy boundaries, it is impossible to walk in the freedom and joy of our Christian faith. So boundaries are deeply biblical and absolutely necessary <clears throat> in order for us to walk out God's redemptive purposes in our lives. Okay? Principles to establish healthy boundaries. Who would like to read that? Okay, thank you. Just as homeowners set physical property lines around their land, like fences, walls, hedges, we need to set mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual boundaries for our lives to help distinguish who we are. What is our responsibility? When to say yes and when to say no? 
there are many biblical principles that can help us determine what our boundaries should be. These principles will help to empower us to live our life the way God intended. Very good. Thank you for reading that. So what I'm going to talk about is principles to set boundaries. So I'm not going to be talking about specific boundaries. Actually, um, Christina Flaherty is giving a talk this morning about boundaries, and she's going to be talking more about specific boundaries in the different areas of your life. So if you're interested in that, that would be a good talk to go to. It's actually this hour, isn't it? Um, So I'm not doing that. What I'm doing is I'm actually giving you principles to establish boundaries on your own. Each of you has your own unique context that you need to establish boundaries in. For instance, if you've got a mother-in-law who is really uh, overextending herself in your lives. And, And it's a problem. You need to learn how to set boundaries that limit the, the access that she has to you, okay? Uh, that might be your context. For somebody else, it might be a boss who's asking you to do a lot of extra work that occupies you in your evenings and weekends, and you might have to draw a boundary there as a part of your job. So you can use these principles to establish your own uh, boundaries, but these are the principles that you should use. Boundary number one, the principle of priority. Jesus said to seek the kingdom first and his righteousness and all these other things would be added onto you. That's Matthew 6, 33. He's essentially saying this. If we make God our first priority in life, everything else we need will fall into place. So the first point there in your book, boundaries help us to make sure that first things are first. They keep us from falling victim to the tyranny of the urgent where the urgent but less important things occupy our most, most of our time and attention. You've all experienced this. The urgent things always get your attention, but they're not necessarily the most important things. So if we really pay attention to our boundaries, or excuse me, to our priorities, they'll help us to set boundaries that protect the most important things and keep the urgent things from crowding out our valuable time. Second bullet point, generally most people agree with this list of priorities, God, marriage, family, work, and church, in that order. Now, you can put in their hobbies, friends, wherever you think is appropriate, uh, but generally God, marriage, and family comes first. (coughs) Maintaining a healthy balance in our lives should also include, this is a tough one for a lot of us, good self-care, which means eating well, exercising regularly, and getting enough sleep. It is important to have boundaries that will allow us to say yes to things that are truly important and no to things that will pull us away from the priorities of our lives. Easier said than done, right? But very important. So I, I should let you guys know that with all of these things, there's no, there's no mastering it. There's no point when you can do all six of these things and just kind of go, okay, there I am. Now I'm going to have a perfect set of boundaries. I will tell you as a staff member here at City Church, we are constantly reviewing these principles to make sure that our boundaries are tweaked and we're functioning the way we're supposed to. If we didn't do that, our jobs wouldn't be sustainable in ministry. And your lives are the same way. What you're going to be doing is not going to be sustainable. I don't care what it is unless you have healthy boundaries. So this is a work in progress, okay? Principle number two, the principle of identity. Knowing your identity in Christ is the most important boundary of all. This makes all other boundaries work. If this one isn't in place, it's going to be difficult to keep all other boundaries. If we let the world and others define who we are, we will forever be locked in the world system of defining defining value, which is based on performance, okay? So if we let the world and others define us, our value will be determined upon this treadmill of performance. When our value is based on the uncertain foundation of performance, We will always be making decisions based on fear and insecurity. Am I ever doing enough? Am I measuring up? The fear of man keeps us in bondage to the never-ending quest to please others and to be well-liked. 
the need for recognition and acceptance makes us very susceptible to the thoughts and judgments and criticisms of others and can drive us to make all kinds of choices that compromise our values and priorities. Does that, does that make sense? Second bullet point there, knowing your identity in Christ means that you have learned to see yourself the way God sees you. This is so important. If there's a theme of my life the last 15 years, it's this, this theme. I'm bound and determined to see myself the way God sees me in every aspect. I remember even a couple years ago, I did something to my, I did something that I didn't like. And I said, Joel, you stupid idiot. And I, and then I caught myself. I said, wait a second. Is that how God sees me? No. Then where do I come off calling myself that kind of a name? I mean, this is far reaching. I mean, it's, it's powerful stuff. If you understand that you are accepted in the beloved, if you understand that you're loved and you're a lover, these are the core things about your identity, that you're a favored son or daughter, God is your father, Jesus is your brother, and you are an heir with an amazing inheritance. You understand that it's more about who I am than about what I do that really matters. And because of, this fa- because of these facts, I have nothing to prove, I have nothing to lose, and I have nothing to gain. Right, Kim? I have nothing to, I have nothing to, uh, lo- I, I mean, I have nothing to prove because I'm already accepted. The most important person in the universe accepts who I am. What, what do I have to prove? Nothing. I have nothing to lose because guess what? As a disciple of Christ, I've surrendered it all anyhow. I, I've, I've, I've let go of all of these things for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I have nothing to gain because you can't give me what I already have, right? And, and I've got everything. I'm a son of, of God who owns the universe. I mean, what can you give me that I don't already have? So if you understand that you have nothing to prove, nothing to lose, what, what can people take from you that's, that's valuable? I mean, let them take your house and your car and even your life. They can't take away the things that are really valuable. And you have nothing to gain because what can you give me that I don't already have? Wow, that's a place of security. And because of these facts, I know who completes me. I know who my joy is. I know what my motivation for everything I do is. I know the one that I seek to please. That is a place of security. So from this place of security, this is your second bullet point there, or your third bullet point under this section, I step off the hamster wheel of performance and I enjoy the freedom of complete acceptance. Is everybody following me in the notes? Okay. Since the primary motivation of my life is to please God and not man, I can put boundaries in place that will allow me to live my life in the freedom, peace, and joy, and security of His unconditional love. In other words, I'm free to be the man that he created me to be. You can see why that principle is such an important principle in setting healthy boundaries. Principle number three, the principle of ownership and responsibility. Hey, Keith. Point number one there, the principle of ownership involves taking full responsibility for my life. It involves an acute sense of knowing what I'm responsible for and what I'm not responsible for. This is one of the first things I do when I'm in a counseling situation with somebody who's really distraught about their situation. I say, okay, what are you responsible for? What are you not responsible for? For all the things that you're not responsible for and don't have any control over, let's just lop those off right now. Well, for most people, that's, that's most of it. <laughs> And what you are responsible for, let's take a good look at that and see how you can respond to God in this situation by his grace. This is huge. This is critical for an important in boundary setting. This, this idea of ownership, setting boundaries, it's, it's critical to understand that you own your own thoughts, your own attitudes, your own feelings, your own behaviors. They belong to you. You are responsible for managing those things. Okay. Now, when we don't have a clear understanding about what we're responsible for, it opens the door to all kinds of destructive influences, both within us and outside of us. 
The destruction within comes when we have a tendency to blame others or make them responsible for our lives. You can see that we're already in trouble when we start doing that because we're making somebody else responsible for our feelings and our behaviors and our thoughts. By the way, that is by definition what the identity of a victim is, and we're going to talk more about that later. The destruction from without comes when we try to change other people or take responsibility for their lives. Which brings us to this next bullet point. The principle of responsibility means that I don't take responsibility for you. You are responsible for yourself. I can't think for you. I can't behave for you. I can't face your disappointments for you. I can't grow for you. Only you can grow for yourself, and I can grow for myself. Now, biblically, we are responsible to one another in our relationships, but we're not responsible for one another. Does that make sense? So this principle of ownership or responsibility is very important when setting healthy boundaries. Principle number four, the principle of consequences. This is really an important one, and I see this one violated a lot. The law of cause and effect, sowing and reaping, is a basic law of life. Whether positive or negative, this law says that we experience the consequences of our actions. Okay? Consequences serve as a good teacher, as a good tutor. They teach us that our choices and behaviors matter and have a direct impact on our lives. Now, the second point there, sometimes, however, the law of sowing and reaping can be interrupted. Sometimes people don't experience the consequences of their choices and actions because someone else steps in and absorbs or minimizes those consequences. Now, the person who steps in to rescue, notice the word that I used there, rescue another person from the natural consequences of their actions ends up enabling that person to continue their irresponsible behavior. We call these people rescuers, and rescuers are codependent people because they often rescue out of their own need to be needed. A codependent person is like a cosigner on a loan. It's one of the reasons that the Bible discourages cosigning, because when you cosign, you become responsible for the behavior of another person, right? So if you co-sign for your child and your child hasn't grown up yet and they default on the loan, who's on the hook for that loan? You are. And you're, you're rescuing them or sheltering them from the consequences of their own choices. So establishing healthy boundaries stops interrupting the law of sowing and reaping. In other words, boundaries put the person who's doing the sowing back into the rightful place of also doing the reaping. Does that make sense? Really important principle when it comes to establishing healthy boundaries. Principle number five, the principle of freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. The principle of freedom exposes the real motivations of our lives. And I'll tell you how in just a moment. Am I free to make choices that are consistent with what it means to be the true person that God made me to be? If my motivation is coming from a fear of loss of love, if, if it's coming from fear of abandonment, it's com- if it's coming from a fear of other people's anger, or a fear of loneliness, if my motivation is guilt or the approval of others, I will always have poor boundaries. My lack of boundaries reflects the motivation in in my life to have basic needs met by others. Coming to a better understanding of how I have been made complete in Christ will help me to have healthy boundaries and walk in the freedom of my salvation. 
Now, another aspect, and this is the second bullet point there, of the, this principle of freedom is recognizing the freedom that others have to set their own boundaries. If we want our boundaries to be respected, we have to respect the boundaries of others. Freedom begets freedom. If we want others to respect our no, we need to respect their no. Whether we like their boundaries or not, we need to give people the freedom to make their own choices. Now, I'll be real honest with you. My oldest daughter and her husband have set a lot of boundaries around their family that Connie and I don't like because we don't have as much access to them as we would like. That may mean that we don't get together with them as often as we'd like. It may mean that they don't join us for birthday celebrations or holiday celebrations or whatever it is that we're inviting them to. Do we like the boundaries that we set? or that they, Do we like the boundaries that they have set? No, because we'd like to spend more time with them. But you know what? They're continually putting their family first and doing things that they feel they can do and not doing things that they feel they can't do. And you know what? If Connie and I want them to respect our boundaries, whatever they may be, we certainly need to respect their boundaries, whether we like them or not. Does that make sense? And then principle number six, the principle of guarding your heart. Proverbs 4.23 has become one of my favorite scriptures. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, the phrase above all else is a pretty exclusive priority. Other Other translations say, guard your heart with all diligence. God has given us the responsibility of managing our lives in such a way as to keep the wellspring of our lives flowing. The wellspring is the real source of our lives. Jesus tells us to be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves in Matthew 10, 16. Here's what I think that passage means. This has become another favorite one of mine. We need to be wise to the craftiness of the enemy. We need to be wise to the deceitfulness of sin. We need to be wise to the manipulation of men. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't be naive. But... We must not let that knowledge cause us to be cynical and hard-hearted. How many, how many of you know how easy it is to be cynical and hard-hearted when you understand the craftiness of the enemy, the deceitfulness of sin, and the manipulations of man? I mean, it can be really easy, especially if we've been the victims of those things, to become very cynical that there's anything good in this world and hard-hearted. But Jesus says, no, don't be naive. Understand those things but still keep a tender heart. No one had a more tender heart than Jesus. He said, I only do the things I see the Father doing. I only say the things I hear the Father saying. I want everything I do to be motivated out of my relationship, my tender-hearted relationship with God. He can speak to me and I can hear him because I have a tender heart. That's the beautiful balance. The second point there in your notes, we have to be in tune with our hearts to know what brings death and what brings life. We have to establish and communicate our boundaries by being honest with ourselves and then by communicating our boundaries by speaking the truth in love to others. We don't have to be mean about about that at all. To operate out of compulsion, obligation, or duty rather than joy and freedom is to disown your own heart. Eventually, it will breed resentment, and it is a heart killer. We're going to talk more about this later. Guarding or managing your heart with all diligence has to be a priority of life. Establishing healthy boundaries helps us to do just that. So again, I want to emphasize that these six principles will help you to establish healthy boundaries in your life that will help you be the authentic person that God created you to be. And, you know, when Paul said in Philippians, he said, not that I've already arrived. Keep in mind, I haven't arrived, but I keep pressing on towards the goal of the high prize of the calling in Christ. I think that's where we are in relation to these boundaries. None of us will ever completely arrive. This has to be 
a constant reevaluation, almost a lifestyle of reevaluating. But the more we go on in our walks with the Lord, the more our lives should be the authentic lives that God uh, created when he created us. It's a part of his redemptive purposes. It's a part of being conformed into the image of Christ. And so this is an ongoing process. Okay. Um, any questions about boundaries, establishing healthy boundaries before we go on to part two, um, which we'll be talking about more about our identity? Okay, I'll give, you question, I'll give you an opportunity to share some thoughts and ask questions at the end as well. Okay, let's go on to part two, moving from the bondage of a victim to the freedom of an overcomer. I, I think your notes are a little bit different than mine. Um, I've got this as part two. It might be part three in yours or part four, I'm not sure, but it's, it's this section on moving from the bondage of a victim to the freedom of an overcomer. So if you can find that phrase, you're in the right place. Point one there. Let's just talk about the reality of Christ's victory that has actually made us overcomers. Life is difficult. None of us escapes the pain of life and relationships. We don't all go through the same trials, but as James says, we all experience trials of many kinds. What is more important than the trials that we go through is how we respond to them. Right? I mean, Chuck Swindoll... You, you know his famous phrase, he's a pastor and teacher. He says, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it, right? Attitude. Attitude, exactly. Tim Hansel, president of Ignite, has said that pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. <laughs> right? We'll all experience pain. But whether you stay a miserable person or not is up to you. Our faith based on the finished work of Christ, gives us the perspective and the power to see past the trial and to embrace the redemptive purposes of God. Now, here's the reality in Scripture. I don't know if you have these, um, but if you don't, I'll give you the scriptural reference. In John 16, I think you do have these. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Since Jesus overcame the world, we can overcome the world. He's the first fruits. John 1, or 1 John 5, 4. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, is saying that our faith has a quality or a strength about it that helps us to overcome the world just as Jesus did. So with this divine perspective, we can face our trials with the mindset of empowerment. Jesus has overcome sin and death and all of the power of the enemy. Jesus is the victor, and he has made his victory our victory. And that's what it says in Romans 8. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So if this is true, then you'll see why we ought not live in the identity of a victim, but in the identity of an overcomer. And how we see ourselves is vital. So this is the next point. Proverbs says, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What prevents us from walking in the reality of the freedom of being an overcomer is how we view ourselves in the trial. As we experience trials of many kinds, all of us have been real victims in life and in relationships. We've all been hurt. We've all been abused. We've all had things happen to us that we didn't want to have happen. So in that sense, we've all been victims, right? But it's not the trial itself that it's the problem, nor is it the fact that we've been victims. Rather, it's how we view our victimization that matters. Okay, If we embrace our own victimization to the extent that it becomes part of our identity, how we see ourselves, we disempower ourselves and we begin to walk in bondage. Powerless people have the mistaken belief that the world around them is more powerful than what's inside of them. Isn't that really what defines a victim? I'm powerless. I'm a victim. Everything around me is stronger than I am. 
People are only powerless if they see themselves as powerless. The truth is, in Christ, we are more, we are more powerful than the forces around us. How do I know that? 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. That's how Jesus sees me. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And he's actually referring to the enemy. So if you've got more power in you than the enemy, you certainly have more power in you than the circumstances and the people around you. You are a powerful person. I think you should say, I am a powerful person. Go ahead and say it. I am a powerful person. <laughs> Good. And you're not being egotistical. You're just confessing the truth. Until we can see ourselves as God see us, sees us, as overcomers empowered to do his will, we will be powerless living in the self-imposed bondage of our own prison. This is powerful stuff, isn't it? Characteristics of a victim. We need to look at this because I've seen each of these characteristics in me at one time or another. The identity of a victim has many facets. From being an angry person to being in a state of depression to the Eeyore complex. You know who Eeyore is, right? (laughs) Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I think I'm going to go and eat worms. (laughs) Or to the martyr complex, or to the state of despair where you actually entertain thoughts of suicide. The identity of a victim can take many shapes and forms. Now, there are several characteristics that describe what a victim is. The first one that you have in your notes there is is one who, who has their primary identity in their pain. Okay? A victim rehearses over and over the hurtful things that were done to him or her. The offense constantly occupies your thoughts and prevents you from moving on with your life. Pain often becomes the filter through which life is processed. Such a person can be easily hurt or offended. So if you're one who's constantly processing life through the filter of pain that you've experienced, you're going to be offended quite easily at most anything that comes at you. I have to I have to share tell you guys I see on the news my wife and I watch the national news every night and I'm just amazed at the number of people that they interview who after 5 10 15 20 years of having something bad happen to them are still working on trying to find their rapist or you know get justice for the person who murdered a family member and you can tell that their lives are in absolute turmoil Well, I agree that justice needs to happen, but oh my gosh, to stay in that victim place until you get justice and not able to move on with your life until it happens is a horrible place to be. We're so blessed in Christ because in Christ, right away, we can walk in forgiveness and then we can say, you know what, God, I know nothing escapes your notice. There's going to be ultimate justice either in this life or in the next. I don't have to worry about finding that person. I can forgive. I can let it go. Let you be the judge and the one who finds justice, and I can move on with my life in freedom. A second characteristic of a victim is the desperate need to find someone or something to blame. Okay? Instead of facing what's going on inside of me that's causing me to feel this way, I've got to find somebody else or something else who must be at fault. When we embrace the identity of of a victim, what we actually do is we abdicate personal responsibility for our lives. I'm allowing my emotional state of mind and how I react to things to be determined by what someone else or something else has done or not done in my life. In other words, I'm in this state or condition because of some external influence, which is to blame. That's, That's the definition of a victim. A third characteristic of a victim is this feeling of powerlessness, and we've talked about this a little bit. One becomes powerless by making someone else responsible for my life, okay? So when you see yourself as a victim, you disempower yourself because you take away the power that you have over yourself, and you completely empower the one who's hurt you. And because of the mindset that someone else or something else is responsible for what we're feeling right now, We have no path towards resolution. The person or the situation who caused 
the pain has to change now in order for you to change. That's why this person can be waiting for 20 years before there's resolution and it may never come. Until the person who caused the pain, and this is the victim, the mentality of a victim, until the person who caused that pain in me acknowledges their hurt, acknowledges their wrong, apologizes, or makes it right somehow, there's nothing I can do but be miserable. And I'm saying to you guys, based on the gospel, that no one should be allowed to have that kind of control or power over us. A fourth characteristic of a victim is this sense of entitlement. There is a high expectation for a certain outcome or a need to be met. This is an entitled person. High expectation that certain needs or outcomes need to happen. When that expectation isn't met, the disappointment is taken as a personal offense. It's like, this isn't fair. This isn't right. This shouldn't have happened. I don't deserve this. I have a right to be treated in a certain way. And my rights have been violated. Someone has to make this right. That's an entitlement person saying that. The mindset of entitlement is always a setup for offense. The world is supposed to understand how I should be treated. And in fact, treat me that way. <laughs> this, is, of course, is a very myopic and unrealistic view of life. Jesus taught us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He said, just as they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Christians aren't exempt from the problems of everyday life. People are always going to do what people do. Isn't that profound? People out there are always going to do what they do. I'm not going to be able to change the human race so that they can stop offending me. <laughs> what I have to realize if that I, is, that, is that if I want things to change, I'm going to have to change myself. And then a fifth characteristic of a victim is self-pity. Self-pity, you guys, and I don't mean to sound mean, but self-pity is one of the most useless of all human emotions. Nothing good comes from it. The pain a victim feels causes him to feel alone and isolated. The feeling that that person has um, is that I'm the only person in the world that this has happened to. Whether they express them or not, these are the battle cries of one who is feeling sorry for themselves. No one understands. No one knows what I'm going through. Until you've walked in my shoes, you don't know what I've been facing. A former pastor of mine used to say, wah, 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 call the wambulance. <laughs> you guys remember that from Shane Holden, right? Here we're going to talk about ownership again. The concept of ownership is vital. To say, I am this way because someone else said or did something to make me this way is to completely disown yourself. It is important for us to learn how to own our own thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. No one makes us do anything. Okay? For example, no one can make you angry or sad or happy. You may choose to get angry, sad, or happy based on how you're processing the offense, but no one makes you that way. We are in control of ourselves. We have to be responsible for ourselves. So no one can hurt us. No one can make us crabby or irritable or mean unless we let them. No one has the power to influence us in those ways unless we give them permission. If we want to walk in the freedom of empowerment that is ours in Christ, we have to make a choice to be completely responsible for ourselves no matter what happens to us. Again, it's Chuck Swindoll. Life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you respond to it. The next point there, the courage to redirect your focus. In the short term, it's a lot easier, and I have to admit this, it's a lot easier to blame someone else for my woes than to take responsibility for them myself. Looking for someone or something to blame is fruitless and disempowering. On the other hand, it takes a lot of courage to look inside and discover the things that aren't right and may need to change. 
Okay? Trials do what trials do. They expose or reveal what's inside of us. That's where you find your true character. Now, it's not fun to look inside. There may be unforgiveness. There may be past wounds that have to be healed. There may be a sense of insecurity about something. There may be low self-esteem. There is a reason why I react the way I do. And so the second point there in your notes, God is using this situation, whatever it is, as a trigger to reveal things in me that he may want to heal or change. And the sooner I face this reality and allow God to do his good work in me, the sooner I can move past the pain of this situation. So when you become offended, instead of immediately becoming angry and acting out of the pain of the offense, you should do what I'm suggesting in your second bullet point there, or, or third, I'm not sure which it is. One of the best things that you can do is invite God into your equation. And invite God in there, and, and as a part of your process with God, say things like this. These two questions have been the most important questions of my life in the last 10 or 15 years. Why does this hurt so much? Actually ask that question. What is it about who I am that's making me feel this way? And I'm actually saying, make this a prayer. Get on the wrestling mat with God and say, what is going on inside of me that is making me react to this situation in this way? I know I can't change that person. I know I can't change this situation, but I sure am in a living hell right now and I don't like it. What is going on? And so you you spend this time waiting upon God and I'm saying that God has been faithful and he will be faithful to you to give you insights about what's going on. If you continue to stay connected to the body of Christ, you continue to come to Sunday services, continue in your small group, and and you're giving God access to your heart, he will be faithful to reveal to you what's going on. And here's what you're going to be surprised about. Whatever you find, it has more to do with you than it does the person who hurt you. That courage to redirect your focus is important. And then finally, in this section, yes? You said there were two questions. Oh, yeah. The first question is, God, why does this hurt so much? And the second question was, what is it about who I am that is making me feel this way? It's really the same question, just stated in two different ways. And I love this last section. An overcomer always has choices. You always have choices. One of the greatest gifts that God has given us is the will to choose. A victim is one who's living a lie and has come to the fatalistic belief that he has no choice. As a result, his faith has been rendered powerless. And remember, we've been given a faith that can help us to overcome. Christ, on the other hand, sees us as overcomers. The sooner we see ourselves as overcomers, the sooner we will be empowered to do something about our situation. As overcomers, we are never helpless or hopeless because we are never without help or hope. The Holy Spirit is our help and God is our hope. Write this passage down, 2 Corinthians 9.8. This is one you need to memorize. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things... At all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Talk about a verse of an overcomer. That's it right there. And then your second point under this title. By the grace that God supplies, we always have a choice to do the right thing. I define grace this way. The desire and the power to do God's will. The desire and the power to do God's will by the grace that God supplies, we always have a choice to do the right thing. So instead of reacting as victims, we can respond as overcomers with the wisdom that God supplies to take responsibility for our lives and exert positive influence in our spheres of influence. And then the last point there, a powerful person can manage himself no matter what others do. A powerful person can manage himself no matter what others do. We can't change other people, 
and we can't change situations, but we always have a choice to do the next right thing, to rise up in faith, to walk in the victory that Christ purchased with his blood. Amen. Amen. So that's part two. So first part was about uh, boundaries. The second part was about our identity, the identity of an overcomer. This third part is about the motivations of our lives, learning to live by moving from obligation to joy. Okay? Asking the tough questions. Now, you've got, you got a tough question posted there, but I'm going to elaborate on it a little bit. And just listen and kind of self-evaluate as I share this with you. Do you dread the chores of life? The tasks that have become a part of your routine as you fulfill your particular role and carry out your respective responsibilities. Has the daily routine of whatever you do become a drudgery? Do you resent the duties that have been placed upon you? Are you often motivated by guilt? And then the one I listed in your book there. Do you feel imposed upon, taken for granted, taken advantage of, trapped, or feel manipulated by the expectations of others? In the name of being a good Christian, which means being a servant, being servant-hearted, dying to yourself, pleasing others, being well thought of, are the things that you do for others more of a chore than anything else? Now, those things that I mentioned about being a good Christian, being servant-hearted, dying to yourself, those are all good things. But oy, boy, do we use those things against ourselves in the wrong way. So if you answered yes to any of these questions, you are probably living a life of obligation. Living out of obligation is an easy trap to fall into, but it is a very heavy weight to carry, and it deeply affects your outlook on life and the quality of your relationships. So let's look again at the freedom of the gospel. As believers, thanks to the work of Christ on the cross, we do not live to live, we do not need to live out of duty, compulsion, or obligation. Paul said this in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So Paul is addressing the church in Galatia, who after tasting the liberating truth of the gospel, they were drifting back under the heavy weight of trying to please God by observing the law. Now, we can do the same thing. Christ has set us free from the law, which means we've been freed from the law of performance. We mentioned this before. From the law of have-tos and ought-tos and shouldas, being motivated by guilt and from obligation and duty. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the demands of the law, so that in him, we don't have to earn approval. Instead, we can walk in the joy and freedom of his righteousness. This is the difference, you guys, between the old covenant and the new covenant, between living under the law and living under grace, between living as a slave, living as a freedman, between obligation or joy. Now, we'll get to the how-tos in just a minute. But let's look at the slavery mentality just a little bit further. Because our world is based on performance and reward system, it's easily to develop a slavery mentality in how we approach life. But Jesus has changed all that. He's given us a new motivation for living. In John 15, 15, write that one down. He says this, I no longer call you servants or slaves because a servant or a slave does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, and everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. Now, the slavery mentality is a mentality of duty, obligation, begrudging servitude. But a friend, a friend operates out of joy of the relationship. There's a relationship here, and I can operate and I can do the things that I do out of joy of this relationship rather than the begrudging servitude of a slave. Proverbs tells us that one of the most important things we can do 
as we walk in this fallen world is to guard our hearts. We talked about this a little bit already. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. If we don't keep our hearts protected and tender, it can harden. Our hearts can harden, and they can dry up. And when that happens, it causes us to build up walls of resentment and self-protection. One of the easiest ways that happens is if we allow ourselves to function with this slavery mentality, which is a heart killer. Rather, when we function out of the joy of relationship, it keeps our hearts tender and fertile and allows us to experience the wellsprings of life flowing up inside of us. So, how do we move from obligation to joy? How do we move from duty to delight? What does this mean practically in everyday life? It means this. Everything we do can be done in joy as a want to instead of obligation as a have to. How do I get my heart to that place? By going back to my motivation for doing. Okay? Out of the intimacy of my relationship with whoever it is and the honor of serving them, I can do this task with joy. So whether it's my wife or my kids or my employer, out of the relationship that I have with them to serve them and to honor them and to love them, I can do anything out of joy because that's what God has called me to do. Well, what if I don't like the person that I'm serving? Or what if I'm serving an impersonal organization? How do I get my heart in the right place then? Simply by having the right motivation. Who am I doing it for? If I'm doing it for man, obviously my motivation is limited and I am often have self-centered thoughts like what's in it for me. But if I'm doing it for Jesus, anything is possible, right? And so copy these three scriptures down. They are fantastic. Galatians 6.6 6 says this. Do the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were doing it for the Lord, not for men. Because you know that the Lord will reward, will give you a reward for everyone who does what is good. And then this one, Colossians 3.23. It says, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as is if you're working for the Lord and not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And then finally, this one in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This goes to the second bullet point that you have there. With the motivation of pleasing God and bringing glory to Him, I can find joy in doing anything for anyone. And the frosting on the cake is I also get an eternal reward. So let's say my job is cleaning toilets in the, uh, uh, in the coal center. That's my job. I'm a janitor, and I'm, my job is to clean toilets all night long, third shift. That job can be a happy, joyful job, or it can be the worst thing in the world, depending upon how you look at it. If I'm doing it for Jesus, man, and I know I'm getting a reward, I'm not only pleasing him, which brings me delight, but I'm getting a reward for cleaning these toilets, and it's not this med- this paycheck that I'm getting every week. It's something I'm going to get in heaven. God doesn't give cheap rewards. I love the example that Christ sets as the first fruits of our salvation. In John 15, 5, and I read this passage earlier, Jesus said, For everything that I learned from the Father, I have made known to you. So what did Jesus learn from the Father that he passed on to us? Jesus did nothing out of obligation, but he did everything from the place of joy. He's the one who said in Matthew eleven thirty, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, if anybody had a right to say, I have a heavy yoke and I have a heavy burden, it would be Jesus, right? His delight was to please the Father in every way. Even with the prospect of sacrificing his own life, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus laid his life down because he wanted to. No one made him do it. 
It wasn't compulsion. It wasn't obligation. It wasn't duty. It was a joy. In fact, that's what the scripture says. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. I scorn its shame because of the joy that's set before me. This is something I do with joy and from my heart. It's a delight. It's not a duty. So here's the conclusion, you guys. For whatever reason, if you can't get to the place of want to instead of have to, then you shouldn't do whatever it is, okay? If at all possible, you should say no. So, let's say, let's say you're, you're, you're doing something that you, and you just can't get your heart in the right place. It would actually be better to say no than to say yes and do it begrudgingly. Henry Cloud, the author of Boundaries book, says no is a complete sentence. I like that. No. That's a complete sentence. <laughs> would you do this for me? No. Okay. This would be a good time to set a healthy boundary if you can't get from a have to to a want to. You shouldn't say yes unless you have the freedom to say no. Many times we say yes to things for all the wrong reasons. In fact, uh, Jason Wood said that at the beginning. Um, A clear sense of boundaries will help our no's to be guilt-free no's and our yeses to be joy-filled yeses. Wouldn't that be wonderful to live that way? To let your no's be guilt-free no's and to let your yeses be joy-filled yeses. To acquiesce and say yes in spite of the obligation you feel is to do it at your own peril. If you do it repeatedly, your heart eventually will become resentful. As Paul said to the Galatians, Given what Christ has accomplished for us on our behalf, why in the world would we want to operate out of a sense of obligation rather than freedom and joy? The tragedy is that many of us live our lives that way, but the good news is that we don't have to. For the sake of Christ and the gospel, let's walk in the freedom and joy of the beautiful inheritance of our salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, whew, I, I felt like I've had the fire hose up to your mouths this morning. I've given you a lot of information in a very short period of time, and I'm actually glad that we had the extra time. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next hour. Um, but let me open it up to comments. Feel free to make comments or any questions you might have about any of the things that we shared this morning. Yes, Kim. Okay. Um, the characteristics of a victim. So, as you were speaking, I was getting, um, I was struggling with, you know, our natural emotions. You've counseled me on this a gazillion times, you know, but, um, you know, just the, the, just the sense of feeling sad over something, over being hurt or offended or whatever. That I just don't believe that makes you a victim because you're feeling sad, you're no. hurting, you lost something. Not at all. You're grieving. Absolutely. It's natural. So, and, and looking for that validation and somebody to just care. Absolutely. Doesn't make us a victim. No. Those feelings are natural, they're normal, they're healthy. You need to have them. You wouldn't be normal if you didn't have them. You need to cry. You need, you need to, to cry. Like you need to grieve. You need to do all of those things. Now, here's where you can become a victim. You stay there. If you stay there yeah. and don't work from that place. Or you're waiting to be comforted by somebody who's supposed to comfort you yeah. instead of getting it from God. Or or um, it, the same thing just keeps happening over and over and over. Right. Now, if it keeps happening over and over and over it may be a sign that you're not setting up a boundary to protect yourself. But you're absolutely right, Kim. Those emotions that you experience of hurt and pain are normal, natural, healthy, and good. That's how God made us. But if we stay there, if we stay there, that's a problem. We have to work through that so that we... we and, and it doesn't have to be in a hurry. I mean, for goodness sakes, if you if you... If you've lost someone, like say in the family, a death in the family, that's going to take that's going to take some time. Or if you, you know, you've gone through a divorce, or, or you know, um, your, your child is in full rebellion. I mean, these things they take time to work through, like years, sometimes years. Yeah, but 
it's really important how you work through it. The important thing is that you're inviting God into the equation with you, and you're not engaging in all the self-destructive things like self-pity, blame, you know, those kinds of things. Very good, Kim. Thanks for bringing that up. Very good point. Someone else? Comment or a question? Yes. So, question. So about 14 months ago, I was in this very room, I think, listening to you give a talk about, like, some of the membership stuff here at the church. Yes. And I remember one of the concepts, like, with um, kind of the leadership structure here is, I know Thomas talked about this, but, like, he as a leader has to give an account for all the people that are under him. Yeah. And I was wondering kind of how that fits in with the principle of, like, ownership and responsibility for others. Because to some degree, we are responsible, right, for, like, kind of their spiritual growth, I think, right? We're, yes. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. So remember I said we're responsible to one another, but not responsible for one another. Yeah. So in that situation, I would say we're responsible to provide a healthy environment. We're responsible to um, uh, create an environment where people can grow spiritually and find healing. But we're not responsible for their healing. Yes. We're not responsible for making for the choices that they need to make to live victorious Christian lives. It's like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So we are responsible as leaders to provide an environment where people can really thrive and where they can grow spiritually and where they can find healing. But the actual healing itself, uh, the actual living your life, no one can do that for you. And so, but that's that's good. We we are responsible as leaders to care for our flock, um, and so we need to lead them to green pastures and 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 still waters. But we can't make them eat or drink. They have to do that on their own. Yeah, very good. Other questions or comments?